Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. I want to start out with a uh, kind of a follow-on to an op-ed that I published back on September 20th titled, Santa Claus is About to Drop a Bomb on Biden. You'll recall back in, in, uh, on March 6, 1976, in the Wall Street Journal, a political, Republican political strategist Jude Winiski published a piece uh, in which he said the only thing wrong with the U.S. economy is the failure of the Republican Party to play Santa Claus. And he built this case that Democrats were beloved. This was in 76. The Republican Party was in complete wreckage. Uh, it, Jerry Ford couldn't even beat a peanut farmer for president, an unknown peanut farmer at that, all because of the Nixon bribery scandals and everything else. And so he said in the Wall Street Journal, the problem, the reason Republicans keep losing elections is because Democrats are viewed as Santa Claus. They brought us Medicare, they brought us Medicaid, they brought us unemployment insurance, they brought us minimum wage, they brought us all this stuff. And the Republicans said no to every single thing. And he said Republicans have to become Santa Claus and they have to force Democrats to shoot Santa Claus. And so he laid out a very simple process for this. He invented, he literally, Jude Winiski invented this phrase, supply side economics flipped economics on its head and said, it's not wages that drive an economy, it's the, the number of goods and services that are available, supply-side economics. And therefore, when a Republican is in office, it's incumbent on them to, number one, radically cut taxes, and number two, radically increase spending to drive up the deficit as much as possible. This will produce a couple of outcomes. Number one, it'll stimulate the economy, so Americans will think Republicans produce good economies. Number two, it will drive up the debt so that, number three, when Democrats come into office, we can squeal about the debt. And sure enough, Ronald Reagan came into office with an $800 billion national debt. He tripled it to $2.6 trillion by the time he left office, mostly with a giant tax cut. There were also some spending increases. His tax cut, if you carry it out, and this was predicted at the time, in fact, by, by conservatives in the New York Times, that if, Trump's, if uh, Reagan's tax cut stayed in place over the next 20 years, it would add $10 trillion to the U.S. debt. And sure enough, it did. And then George W. Bush came along, did the same thing added another arguably six or seven trillion dollars to the national debt, about five trillion with two illegal wars and two to three trillion with his with his tax cuts, although his tax cuts are still with us, so there's still you know a few more trillion there. And then of course Donald Trump added somewhere in the neighborhood of two to six trillion over the next ten or fifteen years with his tax cuts, two trillion of one point five trillion immediately. And yet during every Democratic administration, the Republicans suddenly are worried 
about this $20 trillion de debt that is almost entirely attributable to three massive Republican tax cuts and two illegal Republican wars. And so it's like, and, and it's been so effective. During the Clinton administration, they were screaming about the national debt that Reagan had run up. They were actually get, able to get Clinton to declare an end to welfare as we know it and the end of the era of big government. I mean, it actually worked, just like Jude Winiski predicted in the Wall Street Journal in 1976. And it worked again with Barack Obama. Um, got him to talk about chaining the CPI and cutting Social Security until his base stopped him. And they're at it again. On the line with us is Jennifer Stefano, the Republican strategist, vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation, fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, IWF.org, CommonwealthFoundation.org, and you can tweet her at Jennifer Stefano. Jennifer, welcome back. While progressive leaders eat cake, their constituents suffer, I think is the name of your piece today. Tell us about your concerns. All right, well, I love that you had brought up Senator Elizabeth Warren because I just I recently her two-income trap, and I think she laid out both the concern and the solution um, that I'm writing about when I'm calling out people like AOC who want to soak the rich but love nothing more than being with rich progressives. Believe me, at the Metropolitan Gala, there are no conservatives invited in. So you have these extremely expensive events. None of the elites wear a mask. The workers are forced to wear a mask. The workers could likely lose their jobs if they don't get vaccinated, but everybody else doesn't have to. So first, it's just that endless hypocrisy that we see that the rules are for thee but not me. It's very problematic to most Americans, regardless of their political persuasion. But back to Senator Warren, what's more frustrating is instead of AOC putting on a dress saying, let's soak or catch the rich, why doesn't she actually put government money where it belongs, which is into the hands of the people? And the best way to do that is put education funding into the hands of the parents. And Elizabeth Warren laid this whole plan out to do exactly that by educational savings accounts and scholarships. And then inside the public sector, allow for total freedom of choice. So there are no more boundaries drawn by. Right. So I get it. You're pitching, you're pitching charter schools here. Let's privatize education after, you know, George W. Bush succeeded in now 40% privatization of Medicare with the Medicare Advantage scam. And, and, and I get it. Republicans want to privatize everything. But, you know, the piece that you sent us, you know, starts out our economic recovery from the COVID shutdown is still it's in, in its infancy. Policies that incentivize gainful employment, reduce regulatory barriers, let innovators fairly compete and rein in government overreach are not genius ideas. Those are all, as, as you well know, Jennifer, conservative code words for we want to cut taxes on rich people even farther and we want to deregulate. Uh, you know, government so that big corporations can pollute even more as long as it keeps them profitable. I mean, you're just you're just playing out Jude Winiski's two Santa Claus theory here, yelling about the Democrats spending money and saying we got to cut taxes and privatize our schools while we're at it. So what do you care whether a school's public or private if children are being helped? What do you care how because public schools, schools are more efficient? Because no, because when somebody know. is sucking 20% off the top to make a buck, or when somebody's trying to pitch their own particular <laughs> corporate shtick or religious shtick on the kids of our country, our entire country suffers. That's why. Like the teachers' unions. You mean the way they suck money out of the system? Let me give you a quick Yes, I example. think people are entitled to be unionized. Excuse me. Heads of the teachers' union in Pennsylvania in the city of Philadelphia, which is overseeing some of the worst failed schools in the country, the head of the teachers' union is paid taxpayer dollars. He hasn't been in the classroom in 30 years. You want to talk about sucking things away 
from the classroom, from public education. Let me just That's because he's running a union. We'll start there. We'll start there. When you guys stop bending a knee to them because they pour their political money into the Democratic Party, you talk about rich. Well, that's because the Look, Democratic Party supports public education and the Republican Party says, oh, no, let's turn it all over to the, to the free market and let the billionaires run our schools. And, and you know, it's like, thank you for a disaster. Our, our public schools. You know, Jennifer, maybe one thing we can agree on. You know, when public schools became a thing in the 1890s, one of the big, and it started in Boston, as you probably know, and spread across the country. Horace Mann was the big evangelist for it. But yeah, a lot of communities, a lot of community, a lot of cities that had black populations in them, but white power structures said, we don't want to be paying for those black schools. And so what they did is they set up a system where education is paid for by local property taxes. So the poor neighborhoods and black neighborhoods would continue to have poor schools and wealthy neighborhoods could continue to have and, and build on really nice schools. Why don't we just stop paying for schools with a property tax and start paying them out of the general fund? First, why don't you go back to the fact that Horace Mann created the public system that he did to keep out all the Catholics, the great unwashed Oh, you're Catholics. absolutely right. It was to break the back of the Catholics in Boston. You're absolutely right. Absolutely wanted to keep the Catholics out. Okay, so that's no, it wasn't one. to keep them out. It was to it was to destroy their political power. But yeah, I'm I'm with you. So you get what I'm saying, right? So yeah, I'm familiar John, with the history. I, I wrote a book right. about it. And right. So let's just be really clear. This was all about power, and it's still a cartel built around and off the back of the children. Tom, let's both agree that what we want, what you want, what I want, and what I think generally every Democrat and Republican wants, is to truly see all children thrive. Now, we can spend hours talking about the history of the system, but I'm not going in that direction, and neither are our children. And, and that's all of our children, regardless of color or gender or what have you. The, what we have been doing is funding failure. Education money continues. We have not. Spending there are great public schools in this country, Jennifer. They just happen to be in communities that have fairly high property taxes because they've got high property values. But right. the simple fact have... of the matter, here's the one thing, Jennifer, if I could just put this on the table, then you can go as far as you want with this. Well, actually, we have two minutes. Um, if we're talking public schools, people have control over that. They, they join the local school board and they can control their local school. With private schools, you've got some corporation running the school. First of all, they have no power. Look at all the people going nuts because their kids weren't back in school or their kids aren't masked or they are masked. There's, there's no power. The power comes with the money. The money should go to the parent. Look out for a big government spending program. I think, like Elizabeth Warren wrote in her book, that we should take every penny, certainly of state education dollars, and give it directly to the parents, particularly low-income parents, parents of color. Elizabeth and Warren is not an advocate for charter schools. Please don't try to make her into one. And what they want to do with their babies. Why you, a white man, got to step in and do that? Let's give them the money. Let them make the decision. I don't need to be told how to educate my child. And it's not right or fair that if I have the money, I can put my kid in a school that I want. But a poor woman, particularly, maybe a woman of color, but certainly a low-income woman, can't have the same decision. All right, so Education let's fix the tax system. Money to the parents. Parental choice. Let's, let's, let's have... Tax. Let's have our schools funded out of the gen, out of the statewide general funds, so that all schools across the state have equal funding. They are. There's plenty of money. They're not. They're funded by local property taxes. Some of it. There's a percentage from federal government, local government, it's state relatively government. Relatively small. 
fact, and in fact, in states like Pennsylvania, there is infinitely more state spending in poor districts to compensate for that. That's why the state got involved, and we do pay for out of I just don't understand, funding. Jennifer, why you would want to turn the education of your children over to a corporation. Oh, no, no, no. I, why would I turn it over to a bunch of government bureaucrats, a bunch of teachers? Because they work all- for us. Because you can, you can run for the school board and actually be elected and be in charge. You can't run for the board of director, directors of a for-profit education corporation. That's, that's a ridiculous statement. The vast majority of schools are profit They're non-profit. The Catholics have outperformed. Even non-profits are corporations. You're not going to be, Jennifer, the Catholic Church won't even let you in as a priest, much less to run a school. Why would I want to be? And let me just say, put the money in the hands of the parents. That's where the power is. Okay, Jennifer Stefano, Republican strategist, vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation, fellow of the Independent Women's Forum. Commonwealthfoundation.org is the website. They, they also publish out an email newsletter, which I got this morning. It's a good one. Jennifer Stefano on Twitter. Jennifer, thank you for dropping by. We'll be right back. John Harbin here with you and Regina in Chicago. Hey, Regina, what's up? I was having a philosophical debate with my brother. Okay. <laughs> Tell him I said hi. So what's on your mind? What you were talking about earlier, I'd just like to share with your listeners that privatization is theft of public funds. That's it. It's I agree. Just, it's an outright theft. And when you look up the word grift in the dictionary... It's an engagement or engaging in petty swindling. And all of the thievery that we see going on, I think we have bumped out of that uh, realm. It's not petty. Mm. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And then when you look at theft, that's an action or a crime of stealing. But, of course, to the Republicans, oh, no, we're not. We're going to provide you with a better product. You know, they they would never admit to. Mm-hmm. It being a, a an action of actually stealing money, and that's what my brother now he just reminded me. We always come to your events when when you're here, you know. Oh, thank you. Uh, when you used to come here, yeah. if you'll ever come here again. We miss you here in oh, Chicago. Oh, anyway. Thank you, Regina. Yeah, hopefully we'll be back. <laughs> but but you know uh, when the lottery. They snowed us all here in Illinois. They might have done it in other states, but mm-hmm. I remember them talking about when they started the lottery. Oh, the lottery is going to be this. And, uh, let it, let it vote to have this done. Help the schools. Help the, thank you. Help yeah. the schools. And that it was going to be equally distributed amongst all the counties in the state of Illinois, whereas most of the money came out of the state of, I mean, a county of Cook County where Chicago is. Mm-hmm. And if you really break it down, the the elusive uh, happiness goal, you know, every everybody has the opportunity to play the lottery, but mostly it's in the uh, poor neighborhood. You know, that's sure. the, the dream. So did the did the did the school money that the lottery is supposed to produce in Illinois not end up back in the communities that were producing most of the revenue for it? Like Chicago? I would think I would think not because when you look at some of the uh, downstate Illinois schools, you got mm-hmm. these huge schools, you know, f- just with everything to be an advantage, brand new computers, and, and then when you come back into the uh, poorer neighborhoods, especially in Cook County, you don't see the uh, equal disbursement. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I've seen that all over the country. I certainly see it where my brothers live back in Michigan. Regina, yeah, thank well, you very much. Yeah, I, I got to run. Let's talk about theft of public.
You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Regina nails it. Privatization is the theft of public funds for private gain. We'll be back. Kevin, listening on Progressive Voices in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hey, I was listening to your segment with the, um, the lady we were talking about. The Jennifer, yeah. Education. And my thing is, I'm a black parent, and I just want us to make it clear, when they talk about parents, they're not really talking about black parents or Latino parents or even LGBTQ parents. You know, I would love to have children learn about the history of racism in school, for example. But, I mean, they're not interested in that. So, you know, I just want people to be clear who they're talking about when they say parents, because I don't think they're representing me or, you know, indigenous parents or anybody like that. Yeah. So, well, I don't think they're, they're representing the majority of parents. The majority of Americans want a strong public school system. The problem is because we fund public schools with property taxes, and I got a note from somebody telling me that in Pennsylvania, 60% of education is paid for with local property taxes. And because we do this, and this is very intentional in the 1890s through the 1920s when these laws were put into place all across the country, it was very intentional to keep poor communities having crappy schools and allow which are largely communities of color and allow wealthy white communities to have really good public schools. I mean, that was just that's that's why it's the yeah. way it is. I'm completely with you, Kevin. Yeah. Kevin, thank you very much for the call. It's, it's spot on. And uh, we'll be right back. It's 22 minutes past the hour. in Rome, New York. Hey, Ralph, what's on your mind today? Tom, thanks for putting me on. When I was listening to you and the woman about uh, charter schools... Jennifer? Thank you. I felt like you and she were arguing about where the deck chairs on the Titanic ought to go. The problem with funding schools is that you haven't properly funded the first five years. Children's development from zero to five is probably more important than what you do for the next 12 years after that. Yeah, that's exactly why in the Build Back Better program, Joe Biden's Build Back Better program, that is only being opposed by Mansion and Cinema right now, there is exactly. basically free pre-K, you know, for three, the ages three to five anyway, uh, for pretty much everybody in the United States. I mean, it's, it's, a very, it's a very smart thing to be doing. And by the way, it's something that most other developed democracies have, have done long, did longer ago. Amen. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, that, th- thank you. much more important than what we had discussing earlier, because yeah. neither you nor she is going to make a big difference from 5 to 15. Yeah. Have a great day. I, I, thank you, Ralph. Yeah, I've, you know, when, when we lived in Germany in uh, 86 and 87, our youngest was five, six years old, maybe, maybe four. She was young in any case. And, you know, they had free public preschools. I mean, it was like, yeah, sure. Glenda in Dundee, Oregon. Hey, Glenda, what's on your mind today? Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to add to the conversation that you had with Jennifer Stefano. Uh-huh. I'm a former preschool teacher. I spent 30 years doing that. And the one thing that I want to point out is that a lot of these voucher schools are also nonprofit schools. So they're not adding to the commons of the roads or the, you know, the commons that are being used 
by everybody by because they're not paying taxes on it. Oh, excellent point. Yeah. And the uh, and there's this new kind of standard for nonprofits that, uh, you know, I think probably Libby Dole back in the 1980s or 1990s, whenever uh, Bob Dole, her, her uh, senator husband, was uh, running for president, she was president of the Red Cross. And there was quite a scandal around the fact that they paid her $700,000 a year and it was a nonprofit organization. And uh, as I recall, I'm, I may have that number wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. It's been a lot of years, though. And, and now you've got nonprofits. I mean, there's nonprofit hospitals that are paying people $10, $15 million a year. You've got nonprofits all over the country that are paying absurd, obscene amounts of money. It's still a scam. You know, they can still run a scam. And it's just instead of distributing the money to the stockholders, they distribute the money to the executives. It's, you know, but it's, it's well, right. and to the politicians who make it possible, right? Right. I mean, that way they can continue their nonprofit status without, you know, actually contributing. Yeah. And I think, I, but I think the larger issue and the one that I brought up with Jennifer was that with a publicly owned school, I am the public. You are the, you are the public, Glenda. We can literally show up at our local school board meeting and make our opinions known or for that matter we can run for school board and we can end up running the school whereas when right. it's a private school whether it's a private corporate for-profit or whether it's a non-profit we have no say in it other than yes i want to send my kid there or not or maybe i can go in and you know beg them to please uh, teach civics or something but they're not answerable to we the people and they're taking right. our tax dollars i'm with you glenda right. thank you very much for the call and thanks for watching us on free speech tv it's great to hear from you stick around it's the tom hartman program the, dare, the place where we dare to say is facebook a person and we dare to say no not a chance come on this corporate person and stuff has gone way too far It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from ADHD and the Edison Gene, a drug-free approach to managing the unique qualities of your child. This is from the introduction. I was in India in 1993 to help manage a community for orphans and blind children on behalf of a German charity. During the monsoon season, the week of the big Hyderabad earthquake, I took an all-day train ride almost all the way across the subcontinent from Bombay through Hyderabad to Rajamundri to visit an obscure town near the Bay of Bengal. In the train compartment with me were several Indian businessmen and a physician. And we had plenty of time to talk as the country flew by from sunrise to sunset. Curious about how they viewed our children diagnosed as having attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, I asked, 
Are you familiar with those types of people who seem to crave stimulation yet have a hard time staying with any one focus for a period of time? They may hop from career to career and sometimes even from relationship to relationship, never seeming to settle into one job or into a life with one person, but the whole time they remain creative, incredibly creative and inventive. Ah, we know this type well, one of the men said, the other three nodding in agreement. Well, what do you call this personality type, I, call, I asked them. Very holy, he said. These are old souls near the end of their karmic cycle. Again, the other three nodded agreement, perhaps a big more, bit more vigorously in response to my startled look. Old souls, I questioned, thinking that a very odd description for some those who uh, American psychiatrists have diagnosed as having a particular disorder. Oh, yes, the physician said. In our religion, we believe that the purpose of reincarnation is to eventually free oneself from worldly entanglement and desire. In each lifetime, we experience certain lessons, and finally we are free of this earth and can merge into the oneness of God. When a soul is very close to the end of those thousands of incarnations, he must take a few lifetimes to do many, many things, to clean up all the little threads left over from his previous lifetimes. Uh, another businessman added, this is a man very close to being enlightened. We have great respect for such individuals, although their lives may be difficult. Another businessman raised a finger and interjected, but it is through the difficulties of such lives the souls are purified. The others nodded agreement. I said, in America, they consider this behavior indicative of a psychiatric disorder. All three looked startled and then laughed. In America, you consider our most holy men, our yogis and swamis, to be crazy people as well, said the physician, with a touch of sadness in his voice. So it is with different cultures. We live in different worlds. We in the Western world have such holy and nearly enlightened people among us, and we say they must be mad. But as we're about to see, they may instead be our most creative individual, our most extraordinary thinkers, our most brilliant inventors and pioneers. The children among us, whom our teachers and psychiatrists say are disordered, they may in fact carry a set of abilities, a skill set, it was necessary for the survival of humankind in the past. It has created much of what we presently treasure as our quality of life and that will be critical to the survival of the human race in the future. There is immense power in how we choose to view what's happening around us. And this is terrifically important when we consider how we can best know our children and provide them with the upbringing they need, an upbringing that will lead them to be healthy, happy, functioning adults. The premise of this book is that children who have what we have come to know as ADHD are important and vital gifts to our society and culture, and in the largest sense can be an extraordinary gift to the world. In addition, for those adults who have been similarly diagnosed or defined, this book offers a new way of understanding themselves and their relationship to the world, a way that brings insight, empowerment, and success. The long history of the human race, as we'll see in this book, has conferred on us, some more than others, a set of predilections, temperaments, and abilities carried through the medium of our genetic makeup. These skills are ideally suited to life in the ever-changing world of our ancient ancestors, and we have now discovered are also ideally suited to the quickly changing modern world of cyberspace and widespread ecological and political crises that require rapid response. I will call this genetic gift the Edison gene, after Thomas Edison, who brought us electric lights and phonographs and movies and literally 10,000 other inventions. He is the model for the sort of impact a well-nurtured child carrying this gene can have on the world. 
While I'm principally referring to the DRD4 gene, see Chapter 5, the science of genetics is embryonic, with new discoveries being made every day. No doubt, sometime soon, we'll have a better, more complete list of the specific genes that make up what Dave DeBronckart first called the Edison trait back in 1992, and Lucy Jo Palladino expanded on considerably in 1997 in her wonderful book, The Edison Trait. For the moment, though, I'll use the useful shorthand of the Edison gene. When Thomas Edison's schoolteacher threw him out of school in the third grade for being fidgety, slow, and inattentive, his mother, Nancy Edison, the well-educated daughter of a Presbyterian minister, was deeply offended by the schoolmaster's characterization of her son. As a result, she pulled him out of school, and she became his teacher from then until the day he went off to work on his own for the railroads. And thus continues the story of people with ADHD and great success and how you can help your child be like that. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's up? Hey, Professor, guess who the number one advocate for the implementation of inherent contempt is? It's you. Remember last Friday when you said that the sergeant of arms you don't have no kick outside of Washington, D.C. When that select committee, if they were to send out subpoenas to Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy, Josh Hawley, or whomever had conversations with the president on January the 6th, should they defy those subpoenas? You're right. If they go back to their home states, then nothing we can do. But if they're in Washington taking votes, they can be arrested. Now, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, I called you up. I was just messing with you. When I told you that my brother-in-law got a contract, remember that, to, to revamp? the uh, jail where they got the President Lincoln's carriage. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that. Did What happened? Well, I was just messing with you. You know, you, oh, uh, I told I you, well, let's come to pass now. Now, here's what we need to do, because you guys are playing hardball, Republicans. We're playing softball. We're trying to save democracy. They're trying to promote fascism. And you know your boy, Lewis Powell, is just smiling in his grave right now. What we need to do is get Papa Joe on TV to let him tell the whole world that nobody is above a subpoena. The guy in France got busted, and he was the chief executive over there. It took him a while, but they got him. Yeah. So Mr. Uh, Papa Joe get on TV, letting everybody know that nobody is above a subpoena. Okay? And the select committee, they don't need to course blessing on this one. I want you to talk about it when I get up here. They don't need to course blessing on this one. Now, they're not going outside of Washington. You're talking TV. about inherent contempt. I'm talking about inherent contempt, but you're the number one advocate. Pick them up if they're in Washington, D.C., right, and the select sure. committee gets win. That sure. they had a conversation with, uh, with Donald Trump. What are going to do, lock him in the bathroom? I mean, there's no jail in the Capitol building anymore. Well, we got, I'll tell you what we do. I'll tell you what we do since they're first-class people. We'll put them in a hotel with security. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. But, you know, I'm not... Well, it's a good question. This is the kind of thing that probably Jamie Raskin would be good at. Maybe, maybe we can get him on the program to talk about because he's a constitutional law professor. And he's the guy who say who's saying we should use inherent contempt, and and it doesn't. Go ahead, Jamie Raskin. Go ahead, Jamie Raskin. Now he is a lawyer. Well, I know it's a lawyer, but my grandmother called him lawyers. Go ahead, Jamie Raskin, because like I like you said it. You yeah. said it, Professor. You put the nail in. If they are in Washington D.C., if they are in Washington D.C. and they defy a subpoena from a congressional select committee, pick them up. Yeah, yeah. Have the sergeant at arms go get him. Okay, I'm with you, Morris. Thank you. We're going to get Jamie Raskin on if you know if he's willing to come on the program and or has the time and find out what the, you know the details of this. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Yeah, Tom, your guest uh, seemed like she was playing a complete non sequitur to your interview, and but she was really demonstrating exactly what the Republican Santa Claus does, which is to say, 
you shouldn't get just what Santa Claus wants you to have. That's what the Democrats do. You should get whatever you want to choose. You see, it's this this uh, idea that you have a right to choices, and therefore they use the power of government, the taxation power of taxation, to then put private or public money into private hands. That's exactly what she was talking about in terms of charter schools, which they want to call public schools, and they're not. And as you aptly pointed out, Medicare Advantage is the same thing, where they use the power of uh, school taxes to then distribute it into private hands, and then the fact that you have to pay FICA taxes, then put it into Medicare Advantage. Neither one is. And I, I wonder if if this would be the case. If we were to... And by the way, 24 centuries ago, Aristotle said, liberty requires neither unlimited choices nor unlimited wealth. This is old stuff. But I wonder in terms of charter schools, I've thought this. If you had to make your choice at the level of funding, that is, if you had an an option as to where you pay your school taxes, you have to pay school taxes. Okay, everybody has and however much you have to pay. We won't change that, but we'll say you can you can choose to pay your let's say whatever two thousand dollars a year to the public school, or you can put it into you know Acme Learning. And at that level, let's see how many of those charter schools actually exist. How many people would actually put their choose to put their taxes into those schools, and then so that you could actually go there. Right. The fact of the matter is, you see, they are actually robbing it. They really are robbing it, oh, and yeah. then. Yeah, and then what they do, of course, as you pointed out, is the big borrow so that you can, the economy looks like it's, it's go- going great because all the money that the rich should be putting into the economy, they're sitting on in their securities, and it looks like, uh, it looks like the economy's coming along while the debt's getting into the, towards $30 trillion. And this is kind of like why the economy feels good is because it's kind of like uh, doing drugs so that you don't feel hungry. You know, you can right. shoot up or toot up or whatever you want to do, and you, you won't have, ever have to eat. You'll never feel hungry. But you will be really emaciated. I mean, that's why... Yeah, ask any that. tweaker. Exactly right. And so so if you, take, if you take that the borrowing out of it and the rich don't have to spend their money in the economy, see, they want to sit on their money so that they can create these political war chests to uh, basically you know, pay for the... The ones who would never make their yeah. pay. No, I, t- I totally get it, Paul. Yeah, we had, we had, I thought we had booked Jennifer. In fact, all, the literature that I had was about how, you know, the Democrats are engaging in irresponsible spending. But I think with my setup, I warned her about that, and she decided not to go there <laughs> and change the right. subject on me. Anyhow, Paul, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, spot on. Spot on. We'll be right back. It's 40, 46 minutes past the hour. What do we do about this, right? It seems like we need legislation. I, I don't know a better solution. Mike in Wycliffe, Ohio. Hey, Mike, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's up? Yeah, Tom, uh, good day to you. I think uh, just to be short here, uh, you could have countered Betsy DeVos Jr. with the ECOT scandal in the state of Ohio. Tell me about that, Where Mike. You live in Ohio. I don't. I don't know anything about it. Well, uh, it's very easy to find in the Columbus Dispatch, where the uh, electronic classroom of tomorrow, which was uh, started by Bill Lager, who contributed heavily to the Republicans in the state of Ohio, uh, the state, one of the most corrupt states 
run by Republicans, uh, where they stiffed the taxpayers here of $80 million. So you could have pointed that out to uh, Betsy, I'll call her, uh, Betsy DeVos Jr. And uh, they're still arguing the case in court. And as one of their lawyers said, um, well, if we just give the money back to the state, uh, they'll just spend it on something stupid. Uh, so, right. uh, I, you know, just to Old show stick. the people uh, uh, how corrupt uh, a lot of these voucher, these phony voucher schools are, uh, we, we could uh, show the, the lady the ECOT. Okay, the electronic classroom of tomorrow. I'll, uh, mental note made, Mike. Thank you very much for that. Phil in Salinas, California. Hey, Phil, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I think that uh, Jennifer Gow. Yeah. She needs to uh, tell us whether she's on a voucher system in her state or whether she's. Uh, I think she loses. Well, I, actually, I don't know. But it, it why? Why do we have to personalize these things? Why can't we just debate them in the abstract? Well, listen, uh, to me, I think the vouchers need to be outlawed because what it does is it robs public schools of their money, mm -hmm. and it would make would make them better. And and the voucher, if somebody wants to send their kid to private school, we'll let them fund that to themselves and not take money out of the public coffers. Yeah. to run the, the public Well, it's school. always been that way. I mean, you know, uh, up until the last, really since the um, the Bush administration in a big way, the George W. Bush administration, up until the last 20 years, uh, it was basically, you know, uh, wealthy people sent their kids to private schools like Ted Cruz does, you know, to a $20,000 a year school where the kids all have to wear masks. And, uh, and, and, you know, regular people send their kids to public schools. And, and Catholics send their kids to Catholic schools. I mean, those, those were the three kind of categories out there. And, well, and uh, now, now we've got these corporate schools. Well, the reason they do that is they want to keep people dumb. Because I don't think so. I think it's because they I, really... They, I, do. I think they want to keep their voters dumb, ignorant. Well, so that's that the consequence, and, them, it, and it's an upside but I think it's mostly they, they want people to make money. They want somebody to make money off everything that we, the people, do. Yeah, well, yeah. They only want their friends to make money. Right. Well, those are the friends that cycle the campaign donations back to them yeah. and get them reelected. Yeah. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. It's a scam, Phil. It's a scam. Phil, thanks right. a lot for the call. Amen. Tony in Chicago. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind? How you doing, Tom? Good. First of all, thank you for your show. I love it. Thank you. But I just have a, I have a question. So, since the Republicans and Joe Manchin and Christian Sinema is trying to do everything to stop the uh, Build Back Better plan and the infrastructure plan from going through, if it does not go through, then will the debt in turn go down? And if that's the case, can, can a Democrat then turn that on the Republicans and then use that as you know, part of campaigning, hey, hey, we made the debt go down. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the short answer is no. Uh, none of that will work, Tony. Here's why. Uh, first of all, the debt, uh, Donald Trump ran up $8 trillion worth of debt in his four years as president. That is the debt that they have to raise the debt ceiling to pay off. 
So number one, it's not about what's going forward. This is not, I realize that the Republicans are out there saying the Democrats have to raise the debt ceiling so they can spend money, but that's simply a lie. It's just a plain old flat out lie, number one. Number two, okay. the Build Back Better plan does not borrow any, any money at all. Even though it's a three and a half trillion dollar plan, it literally does not borrow a cent. It raises taxes on people making over $400,000 a year, up to 27%, which is lower than, than they were when Donald Trump came into office. It, raises ta it establishes a corporate minimum tax and it raises corporate taxes. And, I, and I for, I'm forgetting the number right off the top of my head, but it raises it two or three points into the low 30s, which again is below where it was when Trump came into office. But because this is spread out over 10 years and it's only a couple hundred billion dollars a year, that amount of revenue, that amount of tax revenue, even though it's less than what was given away by the Trump tax cuts, fully pays for this legislation. So the Build Back Better oh, plan does not add to the national debt. In fact, if anything, if anything, let me just add one point here, Tony, and then I'll back to you. When we came out of World War II, when Dwight Eisenhower became president in 1952, we were at 127% of GDP. It was the highest the national debt had ever been. It was about where it is right now. Dwight Eisenhower okay. borrowed even more money and built the national highway system. That national highway system, that giant infrastructure project, generated so much economic activity across the nation that the added taxes on all that economic activity paid down the national debt. And the same thing will happen oh. again. Well, that's great, because so I'm expecting that the debt will go down under Democratic rule as usual, yep. because it always goes up under Republican rule as usual. Yep. So thank you very much, Tom. You're welcome. Thank you, Tony. Good to hear from you. Uh, Danny in Waco, Texas. Hey, Danny, what's up? Yeah, when you were talking about the the charter school and uh, that at med Medicare Advantage, those both to me they just come off as grist because it's a way that uh, government funds that's normally paid for public the welfare of the public are taken and given to private entities. So pretty much they're just money changers because they don't really do anything really. Mm -hmm. They just figured out a way to get money out of doing what, what uh, the public is, has, and the government is already doing. And recycle it back to their politicians that they own. I mean, that, that's yeah. the grift, is that you know, somebody comes along and figures out a way to, to do something that the government is doing, only make it profitable, right? Whether it's charter schools or whether it's right. you know, utilities, uh, you know, privatizing utilities, water, you know, electric, sewage, things like that, uh, privatizing roads. Uh, you know, toll roads, things like that. I, you know, they'll figure out something, or you know, Medicare, privatized Medicare. They'll figure out a way mm -hmm. that they can make some money off it, and then they'll go out and find a bunch of politicians and basically pay them off to promote this. And that's exactly what happened with Medicare Advantage. That's what exactly what happened with, mm -hmm. with uh, you know, Medicare Part D and, and Medicare can't negotiate drug prices. And that's very much what is going on right now with charter schools. So yes, you nailed it, exactly. Dan. You you absolutely nailed it. Uh, Denise in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. About six or eight years ago, before we had Governor Whitmer, I called and tried to find out what was happening to the Michigan lottery money because they kept saying it was going to the schools, yet our taxes were constantly being challenged and, and voted on for school. And so I called and somebody called me back, I can't remember who, and they said, well, what happens with the Michigan lottery money is it goes into the school fund, 
but it doesn't change the funding to the schools because we just use that money to fund the schools, and then we can use the other money in other things. So when we're paying money for taxes for our schools and we think we're paying for schools, they're funding that account with lottery money, but it's not really an advantage. They're taking what what we would pay in and using it on other things. Oh, that's weird. So your property taxes are, are going for... For uh, to pay, you know, to expand the fire department or something, or, or yeah, you know, going whatever. Yeah, something else, and, and, yeah. and we have no idea what they just said. It gives us an opportunity right. to use the tax money elsewhere, which yeah. is totally. So the schools have not benefited. You know, in Norway, when you pay your taxes every year, first of all, you don't have to calculate your taxes. The government does that for you, and they and they send you uh, basically a receipt, your uh, tax form. And not only does it break out all your income and how much it was taxed and, and uh, you know, what your total tax was that you paid, because they do withholding just like we do here, but it also summarizes where your tax dollars went. So it would say, you know, you spent $1,600 in taxes this year. You paid $1,600 in taxes this year. $130 of it went to the schools. $310 of it went to, to our defense systems. $425, whatever. You know, they, they, it's all broken out. And we could do that here in the United States, and it would not be that expensive. It, the industry that is fighting this is the tax preparation industry. They don't want the they don't want the IRS going near anything that has to do with something that they can monetize. And it's right. real it's real unfortunate because I you know I think you're absolutely right. I think if people knew where their tax dollars were going and how they were being spent, um, that it would give people more power because yep. knowledge is power. Absolutely, absolutely. And we need to get back to William Proxmire's Golden Fleece Awards. Denise, thank you for the calls. Uh, he, uh, for those of you who are younger than I am, uh, back in the day, uh, Proxmire, who I believe was the Democratic senator from Wisconsin, used to give a, an award every year to the, the worst, basically, typically defense contractor. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Whoever had fleeced the government the worst. And as I recall, it was Proxmire who outed the $10,000 toilet seats. We'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Mark in Charlotte, Michigan. Hey, Mark, it's been a long time since I've been in Charlotte, but I uh, used to drive through that town a lot. What's up? Well, actually, it's Charlotte. We're, we're from the Charlotte. north. So. Yeah, you're right. It is Charlotte. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Where, where in Michigan is Charlotte? 
Uh, it's just south of Lansing there, about that's, 20 miles. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. My, my apologies. It's been, I've been away from the state for too long. It's been 50 years. That's all right. Uh, hey, I was just going to comment on, on uh, the interview you had with Jennifer and how she so despises the teacher unions mm-hmm. that she just as soon eliminate the unions so that you basically can pay these teachers whatever minimum wage. But yet... If you were to ask a Republican about trying to uh, disband a police union, oh. they would be so up in arms. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, because uh, they protect those, but yet they won't protect the uh, they won't protect the teacher. And it's like I was telling your screener. I said I've never heard of a teacher shooting an unarmed student. You know, and yeah. uh, yet yet the unions are just the worst things to ever hit. And I'm thinking, man. You guys got your priorities in the wrong spot, you know. Yeah. If you want to disband anything, let's let's the, the public service people are are holding communities hostage, so to speak, you know. So, yeah. No, I totally. Anyways, Mark, thank you. I just. Uh, Yep, Spot you're, you're on. welcome, Spot Tom. On. And, uh, Police unions, I'm with you. Thank you, Dave, in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. I just wanted to bring up something. It took me a while to figure it out because I'm so slow. But every time I talk to a Republican or a Democrat, and and I am criticizing uh, Trump, they always bring it back to uh, George Bush. So I just want to make something clear. I was in the George Bush administration, all right? I was on active duty at the time, and I was much younger. And the thing is, is I wasn't, I haven't been, I'm only looking at the Trump administration from the outside. But check this out. Bush approached uh, executive power and the law. His administration approached it in a way that said, does it, does it explicitly say the president can't do a thing? And if it doesn't explicitly say it, then George Bush would do it and his administration would do it. Right. Donald Trump just threw, Donald Trump does not use and his administration did not use that calculus. They don't care if it explicitly says a president can't do it or not. They just do it. And this is what scares me. I mean, Donald Trump, if he has his hands on the arsenal of democracy, that doesn't really scare me. A Trump administration with their grip on the arsenal of democracy scares me to death. And I also just wanted to add that the uh, Friday you told a caller that you don't believe that the U.N. observation of our next elections was, was, was tenable, was something that was right. doable. I can just tell you, because I'm only going to bring this up to you, Tom, because you said you're a peace activist. That is the only way this, these transitions of power in the United States are going to go down peacefully from here on out. And I got you. I, got, I, you're I not fear wrong. you're right. UN, I fear you're right, Dave. The problem is you've got states that have outlawed the U.N. overseeing elections in their states. I mean, this was a hot-button thing on Fox News a couple of years ago. And you had states who actually passed legislation about that. We, you know, we had this national conversation about the U.N. a while ago. Dave, thanks, for, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club, and today we're reading from Robert Draper's book, When the Tea Party Came to Town. And it was actually the original title of this book when it first came out was called Do Not Ask What Good We Do. And this is the only book that tells the story of how the Republicans got together the night that Barack Obama was being inaugurated 
and decided that for the next four or eight years, they were going to do everything they could to destroy our first black president's presidency. And so I'm reading from the prologue, and he's talking about how Frank Luntz had organized that dinner that I was just mentioning. He was very happy about that. The dinner tables were set in a square. This was at the Caucus Room restaurant in a private dining room. It was a little restaurant down at the corner of 9th and D Street. The dinner tables were set in a square at Luntz's request so that everyone could see each other and talk freely. He asked that Gingrich speak first. Gingrich was happy to oblige. And, you know, it goes on through this. Pete Huckstra said, so we're in the depths. And then we get right into it. This was their plan. You know, what their party had done from 94 to 2000, what the Democrats had done from 2006 and 2008, the Republicans would once do again. They would take back the House in November 2010. Then they would use the House as the Republicans' spear point to mortally wound President Obama in 2011. They would do this and take retake the House and the Senate in 2012. Uh, they would do all this, but only if the American voter blessed them to do so. It made no sense. They all agreed to attack Obama personally. He was too popular. Got to be about ideas, said Eric Cantor. Democrats now controlled everything and were already with a monstrously priced economic stimulus package showing their true colors. Given time, they'd screw things up as the GOP had. But, said Paul Ryan, everyone's got to stick together. Ryan, a 38-year-old Wisconsin congressman and numbers fetishist, it was shiny earnestness recalled in Ozzie and Harriet America. Ryan hated squabbling among conservatives, the paleos versus the neos, the socials against the moderates, and on and on for as long as he'd been on the Hill, which was most all of his adult life. Ryan had long sought to be the Republican Party's glue, pleading for adherence to principles and data. At times, he looked like the underfed, hollow-eyed child of alcoholic parents. Well, the only way we'll succeed is if we're united, Ryan told the others. If we tear ourselves apart, we're finished. But, he added, he liked what he was hearing now. Everyone at the table sounded like a genuine conservative. It was a place to start. If you act like you're the minority, you're going to stay in the minority, said Kevin McCarthy. We got to challenge them on every single bill and challenge them on every single campaign. That's Kevin McCarthy. Luntz viewed McCarthy as one of the Republican Party's emerging stars, an easygoing, unthreatening guy who understood that language and appearance mattered as much as substance. Nonetheless, the polar and media guru interjected a cautionary note. Uh, one of the worst political performances I've ever seen, he said, was when the Democrats took over the House in 2007 and Nancy Pelosi shut out the Republicans and everyone whined about it. If any of you behave that way, I'll go on TV and hold you accountable. Luntz tended to get carried away, but everyone knew he had a point. Senator John Kyle began to focus on immediate tactics. He pointed out that Tim Geithner, Obama's nominee to be Secretary of the Treasury, had failed to pay his Social Security and Medicare taxes during his three-year employment at the International Monetary Fund. Kyle sat on the Senate Finance Committee, which would be conducting Geithner's confirmation hearings the next morning. The Arizona senator intended to go after the nominee. I'd like to hear your thoughts on the approach I should take, he said to the others. There was a pattern here, Gingrich pointed out. Charlie Rangel, a House Ways and Means Committee chairman, hadn't paid taxes on his rental property income in more than two decades. Randall and Geithner would be wielding more power over how taxpayer dollars would be spent than anyone else in America. And then there's the web, chimed in McCarthy. There are freshmen who accept campaign money from Rangel. They're caught in the web. McCarthy suggested that they waste no time smacking down the New Democrats for the tax ads. The dinner lasted nearly four hours. They parted company almost giddily. The Republicans had finally agreed on a way forward. Go after Geithner, and indeed Kyle did the next day. Would you answer my question rather than dancing around it, please? Show united and unyielding opposition to the president's policies. 
Eight days later, Minority Whip Cantor would hold the House Republicans to a unanimous no against Obama's economic stimulus plan, begin attacking vulnerable Democrats on the airwaves. The first Democratic National Republican Congressional Committee attacks would run in fewer than two months. Win the spear point of the House in 2010, jab Obama relentlessly in 2011, win the White House and the Senate in 2012. You will remember this day, Newt Gingrich proclaimed to the others as they said goodbye. You'll remember this as the day the seeds of 2012 were, t- were sown. Well, not so much, but I'd say that this is when the seeds of 2016 were sown. Forgotten or at least not discussed that night in the caucus room was what had been sown in America by January 20th, 2009. That was the day the meeting happened, the day that President Obama was sworn into office. On that evening, while the ruling party celebrated in tuxedos and the minority party retrenched over steaks and red wine, U.S. unemployment rate had climbed to 7.6%, the highest such indicator of national misery in 18 years. Things could get much worse. Joblessness in America would exceed 8% the following month. By May 2009, the number would climb to 9.4%, and by October, to 10.2%. And it goes on. It's a great book. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 